Hi, this is Kof Grigo for the picture-poems.com website in the circle in the square. Thanks for tuning in. The Eagle of Freedom, what's that all about? Well, I'd like to do a dialogue tape on that theme. So if you don't know that little saying in prose, uh, let me uh, improvise a version of it right now. I write these down, but really you can take them as a pattern and just the intention is is to riff on them, to improvise on them uh, yourself. Because everybody's sense of freedom is going to be uh, slightly different. So I very much want to encourage that sort of thing. It's the difference between an oral uh, tradition, creative tradition, and simply uh, the printed page. So let's see, the eagle of freedom. The eagle of freedom always has two wings. Freedom to and freedom from. And then you could go on, let's take something highly contentious. My right to own a gun, my freedom to own a gun must be balanced by your freedom, your right to be free of my gun violence. Your right, let's take another contentious one in the West, your right, your freedom to mine for gold upstream from my homestead must be balanced by my right, my freedom. We're using those two words interchangeably, right and freedom. My right, my freedom to be free of your downstream pollution your mercury, your arsenic. You see how they go together. So if you start to go into that, and then the saying goes on, you can do any number of those. Three usually makes a, a, a kind of triangulated hole. The eagle of freedom only soars when both are in perfect balance. So we're introducing a new idea that freedom is always about balance. It's never about absolutes. It's never about just um, what might very well be antiquated laws, but it's always about intelligence the manifestation of intelligence. So, start over again. The ego of freedom. Well, my contention is, is that philosophically, the idea of freedom, both in the natural and cultural contexts, there are differences, both in the natural and cultural context, is crucial. And it's crucial to get as clear as possible. So it's not a problem of politics. It's a problem which is vastly more important and significant in general. It's a problem of a kind of spiritual philosophy. Because many of the things that we say and do further downstream as we enter the world of culture and political discourse and debate are going to be conditioned by our philosophical sense of what freedom really is. And of course, this is not just a question of what I think freedom is. <laughs> That's the whole point of just what I want to do, what I like, what I don't like. It has nothing to do with that. So philosophy does not begin simply with legacy, the past. That's very important. 
Why? Because very well the past might be mistaken. And our dialogue on freedom doesn't, we're speaking English. If you speak in a different language, it's uh, interesting to see how you would modulate the dialogue. But in English, because of the American Constitution and whatever, always being in the background, in that marvelous uh, tradition and document and all the rest of it, well, it doesn't take, uh, for example, the Constitution is in any way, sense, or form uh, being primary. We want to understand this is an ongoing thing. It's not just once. It's about balance and clarity of perception and truth and function. So we're looking at freedom in the most general way. Well, here I'm up doing field work. It's the middle of April. I'm at about 1450 meters. And I'm in the montane transition zone very dynamic now with climate crisis. So I'm sitting, looking southeast over a very large natural, semi-natural meadow, which is about 50% still snow covered. Now I'm just as concerned about the meaning and movement of freedom up here as I would be in any kind, in any language, political discourse. And I want to understand the relationship, where they are similar and where they are different. But it's a marvelous day. It's been kind of nasty weather the past three or four days, and now it's opened up. And this is about climatologically spot-on. These averages and have a sense of them. This isn't a field note report, but I can't help from describing it briefly. So last night got down to about minus 6 or 7 C, about in the lower 20s Fahrenheit. There's something to think about. Is centigrade Fahrenheit, is that a question of freedom? And is that an ethical? Yes. I don't want to go into that now, but somebody out there should do a book on it. The world needs to be on the same page, ethically, crucially important. To teach children still this antiquated, outmoded Fahrenheit system and feet and whatnot is to cripple them trying to do calculus with Roman numerals. But anyway, it's pretty much climate. It's supposed to be cold up here. That's what I wanted to say. So this is what the skiers, what I call uh, silver maple uh, snow, sugar maple snow. So cold nights and relatively warm days. And that's what we're losing up here. And one of the many implications, this is, a, I'm up here doing photography, field work, and writing work, and a bit of composing. And it's a very great privilege right now because uh, no one bothers to come up here. So <laughs> there's a great deal of freedom. Freedom from cars, freedom from trucks, freedom from chainsaws, freedom from guns, freedom from hunters, freedom from ranchers, freedom from cows. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, freedom from in Cliff's book. That's crucial. And <clears throat> that's how, excuse me, that how nature flowers. So the eagle of freedom. Before I forget, with this temperature, 
just one degree C is the difference between snow or ice and water. And we've been seeing occasional heavy rains up here on top of snow all the way up to the top of the range here, the Wurawa, 3,000 meters plus. And one of the many, many, many features of which we're still unaware, unfortunately, is the loss of this marvelous mountain topsoil. When it gets too warm, just watch those streams, boy. They just run muddy as hell. There's water everywhere. And I'm looking at this meadow. The past four days, it's all the nutrients are being leached out. Well, that happens in the forest as well. So all you have to do is run the little creeks and streams. And if you're dependent on the water, as I am now, you really notice it. Today, the difference is just breathtaking crystal clear water. We're just a few degrees C temperature difference. Well, the eagle of freedom. My contention is, is that North America especially, and because the empire of North America, or the power of North America, if you want to be politically more correct, is so dominant worldwide, America's, North America's idea of freedom is spreading around the world. And in some respects, normally we think that's our conditioning, that that's a good thing. And if it really were true freedom in true democracy, we can go into that. We're not taking anything for granted. The whole point of dialogue is to bring up those movements, those assumptions, those thought forms to the surface so they become clear how they're either, how they're first and foremost shaping perception and most likely distorting thought and perception. So my contention is that this idea of freedom is one-sided, this American, North American idea of freedom is one-sided, imbalanced, and false. And it's so one-sided, imbalanced, and false that it will inevitably fall. Just like a biker, a skier, or a runner, if they depend too much on the left side or the right side, it's going to inevitably crash because it is, how do you say, it will become its own a victim of its own contradic internal contradictions, not from outside. We're doing it ourselves. This is not some sort of terrorist force that's destroying us from, it's all coming from our own way of thinking. Which in the dialogue talking circle I'm suggesting is wrong, contradictory, and false. And if it is contradictory, I wish more naturalists would say that, if it is contradictory, it is not sustainable. Is it the only way you can keep a contradiction going is by pumping artificial energy, not natural, but artificial like oil, that you pump it in from the outside. And sooner or later, the gears will lock up and grind apart. That's how contradiction works. So the ego of freedom is an image to keep in mind. Well, where I sit, there, I can't quite see them right now. There's a young golden eagle pair that have just moved into this meadow. 
taking advantage of an, an explosion of what I call ground pigs, the ground squirrel uh, population here, which two years ago reached its peak. And they were just everywhere. <clears throat> this is right about the time of year at this altitude that they'll be coming out from uh, a deep uh, hibernation. And the higher you go, the longer they hibernate. And um, there was an explosion. So the golden eagles exploited that. Uh, that's my theory. I never actually saw them take one, but that's my theory. Um, but now, <laughs> remarkably, you have to be flexible and have to be willing to adapt. That's the key feature of climate crisis in its relationship with culture. Well, that uh, uh, ground squirrel population has totally collapsed. I've only seen one this morning. And believe me that uh, they're a real, uh, they can be potentially, if one doesn't run a clean camp, they can be a real nuisance. They'll eat right through a double wall tent, not to get at your food, but just to get at evidently nesting material. Anything that's made remarkably of hydrocarbons, like a sleeping map, they'll just uh, chew big holes in it and make a mess everywhere. But anyway, um, so they that's like a, a small scale coevolution, which is a manifestation, in my view, of natural intelligence. And one must be free, brother and sister eagle, must be free in order for that intelligence to manifest. Isn't that interesting? I'm suggesting in the talking circle is that that is a general universal principle. There must be freedom of movement for intelligence to manifest. But it's always limited, right? Freedom of movement is never absolute, also not in the natural world. That's how natural limits work. Now let's leap into culture, freedom too. I'm saying that that's a major claim, that North American culture is destroying itself with a false, by a false idea of freedom. Now the sign to look for is again, we've talked about this in other tapes, runaway. When something goes into not growth, we don't want to use that image, that way of talking, it's expansion, it has nothing to do with growth. Runaway expansion is a sign of freedom too gone completely haywire. So every American very proudly will say, well, the freedom too, that's the basis of uh, capitalism, of free enterprise. There you have it right in the world. That and if you see free enterprise at its best, especially at its creative phase, when it's just taking off, like uh, two kids starting up a search engine that they decided to call Google, or with somebody with uh, that uh, took the Bonanza PayPal and turned it into Tesla Motors in X space. There's tremendous creativity involved in that form of free enterprise. If you have the ideas, that's number one. And if you have the personal initiative and energy, well, that can change the world. And we all applaud. I forgot to add the great, late Steve Jobs to that. We all applaud and use their marvelous uh, uh, inventions. But if we think that through, those movements, if they're not limited invariably, inherently, and naturally, 
tend to go into a runaway. Why? Because of that, what we don't see in our ignorance of the formative movement of thought, of much we'll have more. Well, this worked, let's just do more of it. Without looking at the uh, lower level economic to the much higher level ethical consequences of doing so. So we go from freedom to, if it's limited, it's always good. But if it's unlimited, watch out. Because what you really have is the dictatorship of the individual then what's called a monopoly, like happened with Microsoft, and which happened with Standard Oil, which happened with any of the any number of the banking giants, and especially corporate now world America. So it goes into a runaway and it becomes not just a dominant it becomes an authoritarian, totalitarian, private enterprise, which uh, controls, basically that's their intention, controls whatever part of the world uh, that's in, they see as being in their self-interest. Well, that's one of the many ways that freedom, too, uh, runs amok and must not be controlled. That's not what we're saying must be limited by what? Freedom from. Now, whereas freedom to is generally the individual, freedom from is generally us, we, the collective. And with collective, I mean, in my view, the whole of creatura, not just America, not just whatever government, not just whatever English or language group or race or whatever, but the whole living earth must inherently be represented for what should be obvious reasons. Because my freedom too once it goes into at whatever scale, it's happening here. Just in the relatively isolated island of a mountain range, which is the Wallawas. The freedom too, that people that see that they have the right to do whatever, whether in their relationship, uh, uh, it always has to do with their relationship to the land exploiting what they see as resources. Well, and the normal way of talking, which is so utterly disingenuous, so utterly disingenuous, is that, get out of the way, no regulation. Regulations are the problem because that impedes free enterprise in the individual initiative. Well, obviously at a very low level with one guy with a shovel, that can be true. But as soon as that shovel turns into a chainsaw and a, bone, a bulldozer or a herd of cows and barbed wire, <clears throat> well, that can easily, again, go into runaway. So now you, now you have it, perhaps, this balance is like, it's an ongoing thing. There's no final conclusion about this back and forth between the two wings of the ego of freedom. Freedom to and freedom from. Beware of the man of conclusionary rhetoric. This is too broad an issue for this talking circle. 
But conclusionary rhetoric is a way I have of saying that you know what you want to say, you know, you want to uh, cut down this forest, and you already know that, <laughs> and you've decided to do that, and uh, you have your plans doing it, and then you want to have a so-called public uh, debate about whether or not that should be allowed, that's a good thing, all the rest of it. But you've already decided what you wanted to do. That's why you be, it's called uh, uh, disingenuous, conclusionary rhetoric. So you'll try to give what you want to do, uh, prop it up with supporting arguments. And this is, by and large, uh, become in English-speaking circles, even intellectual circles, the norm that people don't even see that it's a tragic flaw of uh, um, uh, discourse and shouldn't be allowed just like, you know, normal rules of rhetoric, ad hominem, attacking the man or woman is also not to be allowed strikes below the belt and all of that sort of thing that in civil culture um, generally if that still exists, is um, not just looked down upon, not just uh, not tolerated, but uh, uh, their energy is directed towards transcending that by example, by the demonstration of the example. That's the difference, very profound difference, between what we think of as debate, on the one hand, in dialogue, on the other. Debate can easily degenerate into clever, what the Greeks thought of, and were very uh, cognizant how dangerous it was, sophistry. Well, nowadays, that's basically what the, the hired gun lawyer is, a sophist. One who can make the weaker argument the stronger was Aristotle's way of saying it. Well, a dialogue, the key feature is that dialogue, in the way I'm using the word, is bringing out the formative activity of thought as we're talking, what David Bohm called proprioception. So it's really like a meditation on thought and dialogue as it's happening, which isn't very strange. I mean, you couldn't possibly ski, could you, or ride a bicycle. If you were not aware, that means proprioceptively, self-aware of that balance at a deeper level. And what you're especially aware of is imbalance. You have to shift to the left, shift to the right. Well, that's how freedom should be, in my view. So I'm throwing it out there and making that suggestion. Suggestion. And my contention is, is that we never had that. Let me start again. Is that we don't have it. Whether we had it in the past isn't relevant. But freedom from generally has to do with collective space. And collective space has to do with how we see the world, ourselves, and the universe. I would argue, suggest, that it has to do with what we perceive alone and together as sacred space. Well, that's a dialogue discussion just in itself. Just as we're destroying ourselves from a false, because of a false idea of freedom, well, we also have, by and large, in my view, lost a sense of the sacred. Just as we've lost the sense of wisdom, and they go together. Why? Because it is the wise 
movement of intelligence which protects the sacred. So freedom from, in its most general and spiritual sense, that is what it is doing. It is protecting the common ground, the collective, the sacred space, or what Mary Wood has called nature's trust, culture's trust, universal trust, the common spiritual ground. It's protecting that from the negative side effects of an imbalance of freedom too. Does that make sense? An imbalance. There's too much freedom too. So let's start over again. The eagle of freedom Freedom to and freedom from. Well, we need some examples to get it clear, perhaps. And since the wind and the weather are cooperating, it's not even getting too warm. Even though it's approaching in natural time about 11 o'clock. in the morning and the snow I've been meditating on this all morning that I'm sitting and it's just one day snow free remarkably dry already so I see the marvelous channels of the ubiquitous pocket gopher a creature that I greatly admire and that we never see also having a hard time with climate crisis. I'll see them on a February stormy day with too much rain percolating through two meters of snowpack and they bore straight up out of the snow using great energy with a perfectly clean about uh, silver dollar width hole burning through the snow with their own uh, body fat warmth. It's like they're gasping for air, that there's too much running water at the ground surface. You see, with that much snow pack, the ground by and large doesn't freeze, so they're free to make their uh, gopher uh, galleries and holes. I don't know the proper term. But I've seen them come up and also uh, look for new places to go back down and also um, uh, die because of exposure, because of it. So it's a very moving story, the pocket gopher. So in our view of rights and freedom, the pocket gopher, well, <laughs> let's say he has, she has a voice, it has a voice. So out here very early this morning meditating on this, freedom is definitely a part, crucial part, because of this movement of intelligence of the natural world. I'll do it very quickly. But democracy is not. There is natural justice I've talked about before. Every creature's right to a place to be, right to freedom of movement, why? Because otherwise, natural intelligence, which is really, in my view, the energy of universal consciousness, cannot possibly manifest without that freedom. But democracy, one person, one vote, one creature, one vote, well, is not an inherent part of nature. as far as I can tell right now, sitting here. And democracy 
once we go down further downstream into the cultural world, is a crucial part of human culture. Why? Is that's where essentially we not, and this would be a new way of thinking, of conceiving democracy, that's where we work out freedom to and freedom from, what we're doing right now. That we have the leisure and the luxury and the privilege of going through and working out these questions, that's what they are, not conclusions. These questions of freedom. And I would suggest we're wrong right from the very beginning if we think that somehow cultural law and natural law are independent of each other, because they're not. So we need to radically rethink the meaning of both freedom and democracy for the much larger living whole in which we and all of our cultural artifacts, our economies and whatever, are embedded. The eagle of freedom Start over. So we need three examples, and perhaps the pocket gophers are listening. Well, here's one. <clears throat> this um, when I first went to Europe as a young composer and uh, conductor, and computer studio musician, electronic music studio musician. One of the first things I noticed is, that, hey, gee, that um, um, one has to be ready for when six o'clock, this is in Amsterdam, Utrecht, in the, the Netherlands, Holland, that at six o'clock, uh, all the stores, without exception, are closed. Every day of the week, six o'clock. And the other one one had to prepare for was that Sundays, all stores, without exception, were closed. Well, to a young, naive American like myself at first, this was very strange. But remarkably, one adapts, I think it takes five days or so, to adapt <laughs> to this uh, uh, difference. And But understanding the meaning of why one would limit, as an American would see, one's personal, individual freedom to what? Free enterprises, all that. To have my store open like it is now, 24-7. Is that the name of a new store chain, 24-7? Um, well, it took me years to really let that sink in. And by that time, it was starting to be assaulted, not questioned, but assaulted on all sides. Uh, in the Swiss Alps, they just recently, they're gnawing on that uh, restriction all the time, the, the economic forces that uh, be, um, to get that government restriction, that's how they would describe it, off their backs. So they can, because everybody knows that everybody wants to be happy and buying things all the time. And uh, um, we consumers will buy into that pitch almost invariably. So if you, but why would you do that? Why would you limit stores? Well, first and foremost, the inconvenience to the consumer is, in my view, not only zero, uh, but... Um, there are many, many benefits. Also, to the individual business holder, but it must be universal, no exceptions. If there are exceptions, then it doesn't work. So your competition is also closed. It's just uh, it's a level playing field, as we say. So that's a very profound, very simple, straightforward freedom from. Well, now, what is it freedom from? Uh, the 
commercialization of, let's see, what do we want to call it? Cultural trust. The culture trust. Culture's trust. Common ground. All the way to cultural, protecting cultural excellence. To protecting sacred space. There's a very great difference between going and buying a hamburger and going to a symphony concert. So even that the, the regulations in Holland have now been changed, in the past that was a very great boon in my view, I'm just putting it out there into the talking circle, for the life of culture in its most spiritual and sacred sense. So I'm not making an argument for keeping stores closed on Sunday so that the churches can be open, although that would obviously be a part of it. And that's from someone who questions all organized religion. But to have one day where everyone just pauses it could be Monday, as far as I'm concerned. A, a cyclical movement of pausing the whole of commercial enterprise at its best. At its worst, just exploitation and corruption, which is in North America, by and large, what it's become, and also increasingly in Europe. So that's a good example to think about. To the American mind, caught in its imbalanced, one-sided, false idea of freedom, that makes no sense. But from the ego of freedom, it makes all the sense in the world. So meditate on That's one example. Notice that when things are imbalanced, properly, they're self-regulating. Like that one little saying in prose, um, how does it go? Roads are to move traffic, internets are to move bits, as economies are to move goods. And let that sink in. So how do we protect this freedom of movement, I'm making a comparison of three marvelously, potentially marvelously self-organizing systems. Roads, certainly. Internet, certainly, but becoming less and less so as we speak every day. Economy, certainly not. Because in my view, they're in a wild runaway. So I'm trying to make a comparison why we have economic runaway of a lopsided, imbalanced form of freedom. And it does not have anything, in my view, to do with control, but rather limit. And I realize that this sounds very abstract and difficult to understand, but it's not. It's how, in my view, the natural world in freedom and in intelligence works with 100% truth and function. And a sure sign of that is not the runaway in non-sustainable contradiction, but 100% truth and function. And the sign of that is that it's self-organizing, needing almost no, what should you call it, hand of God coming in to tweak the dials. It's just self-organizing in a marvelous way. Well, one of the few cultural artifacts that is a very great gift. It can obviously get out of control, out of balance. Is the um, Western uh, road uh, system. It's almost entirely, if you meditate on it philosophically, it's almost entirely self-organizing. 
and my contention is is that is not doesn't have anything to do with control but rather with clear precise universal with emphasis on a capital U it has to be for everyone no exceptions universal limit as soon as you make exceptions then the whole thing will go into what I think of as contradiction creep it will just very gradually and then a little bit more and a little bit more and before you know it it's out of control and a runaway but all highways tell you to do is what not to do don't drive on the left hand side if you're in North America don't drive faster than this don't turn you just a handful of very clear limits and everyone without exception follows that limit and then with great freedom so it's a wonderful example of the eagle of freedom when there's balance the eagle soars and there's when there's clarity the eagle soars but once you want to exploit the system then the whole thing can very quickly collapse so what would be a second example of freedom to freedom from well uh, early on with um, television broadcasting I think uh, by and large we had a sense that uh, this commercialization of the airwaves was a dangerous thing and so now just imagine in my view it's totally gone into runaway so if you simply are simple and make the they're not similar they're exactly the same how the uh, airwaves function and how a road functions or how the internet functions now once you put the commercialization like you could say okay we want to be free from commercial corruption why because cultures trust spiritual excellence a sense in the of the sacred is what we are about as human beings you can say well no we're not about that we're about uh, making money and well that has by and large been accepted that money has replaced meaning and gives you the sense of freedom too without any limit whatsoever which objectively is indeed basically the case if you have the money you can do basically any damn thing you will please get away with murder as we say with our sophists higher gun lawyers and all the rest of it they co-evolved in a false evolution together but dialogue in this rethinking of democracy is we come together to say is this what we really want we want our children watching 1.3 solid years of commercial television with all its mind-numbing violence and conditioning by the time they're 18 years old is this what we want so we give them a carte blanche just have at the spirits of our children colonize them exploit them so if we were to say no this isn't what we want that was the whole movement of public television well maybe all television should be public I'm just throwing it out there but we've lost that sense of why altogether especially in North America and with the whatever you want to call it the uh, uh, private good public bad neoconservative or neoliberal philosophy 
uh, that has become a worldwide scourge. Well, I wasn't intending to talk about that, but look at that. Why would you say public good, private bad? Like, let's privatize the wilderness areas. I'm sitting right on the foot of one of the world's greatest wildernesses. Freedom to and freedom from. So freedom from says, ipso facto, in fact, in actuality, this space is sacred. It says to the rancher, the truck, and the snow machine, and the chainsaw, till here, baby, but no further. So stop. So what I'm suggesting is that a balanced view of freedom sees that as not just good, but as a necessity. That if we don't do that, we have again self-destructive, one-sided, imbalanced sense of freedom that will inevitably, just in the time of Aristotle, it has nothing to do with the culture, it has to do with uh, thought itself. Thought, by its nature, is runaway, not potentially. Why? Because it artificially and self-destructively divides itself from the world and props itself up with an idea of independence, superiority, and before you know it, the hand of God in control will seep in. And then nature becomes a machine to be exploited. Well, the great insight and the great privilege of wilderness, and this is only since 1964, was not to fight back, but to suggest that freedom that's incipiently in its very nature, they didn't use those words, but in my view that's what it's about, is to bring proper order and balance in our democratic dialogue of what is freedom. So you see, if we begin with something like the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, we'll be utterly, hopelessly confused from the very beginning. So there's something that we've totally lost that. The FCC has been, that's the communication, whatever, uh, that's the governmental organization which is supposed to protect the airwaves has obviously been totally corrupted. That's why this idea, by what? Just by economic forces. The Rupert Murdochs of the world coming in like the most uh, um, toxic weed imaginable and not taking over nature's trust, but taking over culture's trust. So you see, in the movement of corruption, there is no difference. So it would be very simple if one's clear right from the very beginning, just like with that road we were talking about, to stop it before it starts. But we have to be crystal clear about freedom. And we have to be ever vigilant, which is what we're not. Now, I'm waiting to see if the eagle is going to take off and use these thermals now. But maybe they've changed their nesting site. I haven't seen them the past few days. You gotta be free to move up here. A lot of things be changing. At this altitude, one really starts to become aware of the catastrophic effects of climate crisis. 
I couldn't even begin to go into it right now to catalog them. I'll just mention that all of what we uh, consider the shrubby trees, those smaller trees all the way from the aspen groves, I can see three separate aspen groves from where I'm sitting. Because of a hotter, drier climate, that's my view, so I throw it out into the talking circle. A hotter, drier climate, they are stressed and have become vulnerable to different uh, fungus diseases and whatnot. But the primary thing, in my view, is hotter, drier, and stressed out. So they're all in profound collapse, not just dying. I don't want to go into the details. There are scattered, magnificent hawthorn berries. There are probably nine or ten I can see just at a glance in marvelously spaced about 50 meters between each bush. As if they were planted that way. Well, they've also been suffering because of the drought, there were no berries for the, uh, the birds and other wildlife that remain up here year-round in the winter. They were all gone by August. And their wood, because of desiccation, has become so stressed they were incapable of supporting the great weight of a sudden warming we had in December. Breathtaking. Heavy snow. And then uh, zap. A freeze of that heavy snow which created weight on all of these shrubby tree branches and everywhere I look they've been broken also with the uh, Sitka alder a riparian species it's breathtaking just the aspen would be enough to stop any reasonable person dead in their tracks what on earth is going on here So, to finish up with our Eagle of Freedom, we have two examples. That's the um, closed stores, ladies and gentlemen, and the happy streets of Amsterdam, one of the cultural capitals of the world, giving free and open space not only to the owner of stores, the baker and the shoemaker or whatever, the bookseller, but also freedom for non-commercial cultures, trust, spiritual excellence, symphony concerts. Perhaps even new music, contemporary music. So we have that freedom from and we have uh, uh, the loss of the freedom from commercial airwaves. You can meditate on that. You could easily write any number of books. I hope somebody will. And what that means, that loss just in North America. It's made education basically, in my view, impossible. Well, maybe that's enough of examples to meditate on. And just let me end this discussion of the dialogue and the eagle of freedom. Doesn't look like the eagle is going to appear. On this feeling that I have of the difference between uh, debate and dialogue and that what I see, the great danger of this imbalanced idea of freedom is that we lose our democracy, which is happening, I would argue, worldwide as we speak. And we don't want that to happen. 
and we certainly don't want any kind of armed revolt to try to correct that. Uh, but what we want is rather to become aware, and this is the difference very briefly between uh, dialogue and debate. Debate is really like a logical fight with winners and losers, whereas in uh, dialogue it's not just win-win, um, but there are no winners and losers because uh, you enter the dialogue circle in complete freedom together. Why? Because you know that it is a necessity if we want to understand how freedom in democracy work. That we, we become aware of the formative activities of thought itself. So that's, in my view, briefly, how I think democracy could and is being reborn. So we need that clear idea of freedom. And nature's trust, a sacred space where I'm sitting right now, certainly needs it. Okay, that's it for now. Thanks for listening. Signing off for picture-poems.com and the circle in the square. This is Cliff. Ciao for now.